Um, so since we had to cancel youth group last Friday, uh, I've decided to give you guys our mental health talk tonight. So that was actually what was planned last Friday. Um, good news, if you guys were uh, saddened by the fact that we had to cancel youth group, uh, we are, we're going we're to be doing it tonight. Um, this talk, uh, I should actually mention, I'm actually calling it a lecture. You guys will notice in your pamphlets that it actually says Kairos Lecture Notes. Uh, this is not a sermon, okay? Um, I just have to get that out of the way. It is, it is more of a talk. Um, <clears throat> uh, this talk was a training that I actually did for our youth staff. Uh, but with some editing, I decided to give it to you guys also. Uh, here's the reason why. I, I know you high schoolers like to be taken seriously. So this is me taking you guys seriously, okay? Um, tonight's talk is roughly the length of not one message, but two, okay? Uh, it is long. Uh, we haven't met in three weeks, and so I, I got to give you your money's worth, okay? So, um, but here's what we're going to do, okay? Uh, I'm going to teach the first part and, and then take a 10-minute break, okay? Uh, and then continue the second part and finish. Uh, we may or may not have small groups, depending on how long I go. Um, and so that's just, uh, just a heads up. Um, you might be wondering why it's so long, and I think some of you guys might like this. Uh, I think there's a meme that I took a long, a long time working on. Uh, that might help explain why it's so long. It's because one does not simply talk about mental health uh, for 40 minutes, okay? Uh, or in 40 minutes, rather. Um, as we all know, mental health uh, is a huge topic that isn't just a topic for those uh, in ivory towers. It is an everyday conversation. Uh, mental health uh, is either... Uh, as, as, um, either as a topic of discussion or as a personal experience, affects us and those whom we love. And so, of course, mental health can never be something that's just occupied by, um, by those, you know, uh, in academic settings. And so we want to better understand mental health, not as a way to solve people's problems um, or to solve what is by nature complex, but we want to understand mental health and those who are affected by it as a way to love others, Okay. And so if you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, thank you for being here. You may, might not have even known that we're do, doing a, a talk on mental health. Um, but I hope that uh, if you are especially a visitor, uh, that this benefits you. Uh, I hope that it actually provides some clarity on how, cult, how, on, on, on how culture has been talking about mental health and, and actually seeing um, mental health being talked about in a theological, biblical perspective. Okay? And so that's my hope and my goal for, for us uh, tonight as we... Um, undertake uh, this really big topic together. And so with that, let me pray for us and uh, get started with our time, okay? Father, we uh, recognize that mental health is not just something that we talk about. Um, it is something that is personal. It is not a concept or an idea. It's, it's something that uh, dearly affects those whom we love, those whom we dearly cherish uh, in friendship and relationship. And so, Father, I pray that in the next uh, hour or hour and a half or so, uh, Father, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to look at uh, this topic of mental health, not merely just as a, as a topic, but really something as a, a means by which we love others, as we just talked about. I pray that you'd help us to have clarity from it, from the scriptures, to see how the scriptures define and clarify how we ought to be thinking about mental health, but also that you'd also equip us with ways on how we can actually love others faithfully. And so, Father, um, this is a huge topic, as you know, Father, and so I pray that... Um, 
And, and it's possible for a lot of these ideas uh, to be lost over these high schoolers. But Father, I pray that you protect us from merely, again, seeing uh, mental health as just this kind of these, these sets of ideas. But really, uh, I pray that you'd help us to, to really have a theological uh, framework and paradigm by which we actually love others. And so, Father, thank you. And most importantly of all, um, even as we look to this topic of mental health, point us and direct our hearts to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. <clears throat> Amen. All right, and so um, as we look at the topic of mental health, uh, obviously it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a topic and conversation that we see and hear everywhere. Uh, we hear it in the Olympics, if you guys are aware of it, uh, from uh, obviously Simone Biles' um, uh, retraction from the Olympics because of her mental health. Um, countless uh, uh, prominent figures in media um, have been obviously affected by this topic of mental health, um, and so... Um, one thing that I want us to be aware of and be um, cognizant of as we think about mental health is that uh, we don't want to see those who struggle as those whom we attempt to fix or solve. Um, in many cases, mental health problems will be lifelong struggles. Uh, there are no pat answers or quick fixes. It's the reason why this talk is so long. We just can't do it sufficiently even in an hour and a half. This is a lifelong conversation that we have to have. Um, and so as we begin, I want to frame the typical language of mental health, not so much in military, militaristic terms or categories, uh, as if mental health is a battle to be fought. Uh, here's an example. Uh, in fact, using military metaphors to frame mental health struggles, military terms like battling depression or wrestling with bipolar disorder or fighting schizophrenia, those terms may seem harmless and innocuous, but we already start framing mental health in terms of moral victory or defeat. And we don't want to do that when we talk about mental health. Uh, the theologian Richard Arendale suggests that this is a problem because when we frame mental illness as an antagonist to be battled and fought with, mental illness becomes codified as a social stigma. And we don't want to do that, obviously. And so when we view mental illness as an enemy that must be conquered or rid of, we narrowly limit human flourishing in this life to life without mental illness. And that is false hope. The hope of the gospel is that human flourishing in this life can still be truly experienced even when mental health illnesses persist because the path to human flourishing is life with God, not life without illness. Mike Emlett points out that a person without a diagnosed mental health disorder may in fact be living a life oriented away from God, while a person with a diagnosed health, uh, mental health disorder may in fact be living a life oriented toward God. Life, in other words, life without illness, but without God, is a life of insanity. While a life with illness, but with God, can still be life to the full. Okay? And so as a result, it's more faithful to the scriptures and to the sufferer to frame and talk about mental health really as a journey. Okay? To frame it as a path toward healing and wholeness with God as the sustainer and end of the journey. 
And so mental health framed as a journey reminds us that a journey is something that we embark upon, sometimes willingly or otherwise, as we travel from one place to another. Sometimes we choose our journeys, and at other times we are forced to go to places that we don't want to go to. Some journeys are easy and the burden is light, while others feel like trudging through mud in the rain. Journeys also require maps, authoritative guides, faithful friends and communities, and also good equipment. And so as a result, as we walk with people on this path and journey, we want to be those faithful friends and communities. That's what I hope this high school group would be as a result of this mental health training and talk. We want to look to the scriptures as our authoritative guide. We want to glean from other helpful maps that through God's common grace, God makes available for us to use. And so this, this talk, this lecture, exists to help those who suffer or for those of us who suffer ourselves. To a certain extent, this is something that I want us to be um, aware of. To a certain extent, we are all on a path of healing and wholeness with God and toward God. Not just some people, not just those people, not, the, not just those who struggle. It's all of us. We are all on the path of healing and wholeness with God and toward God. Because our differences with others aren't different kinds of struggles, but really de- different degrees of struggle. Okay, We are all on the same path. And so to start our time together, we need to ground uh, the topic of mental health within what's known as the doctrine of creation. Uh, sorry, the doctrine of scripture. We need to establish some biblical assumptions that I think by implication will also challenge some unbiblical assumptions about mental health. Okay? And so as we seek to arrive at a theology of mental health, uh, we have to first consider the relationship between the Bible, scripture, and extra biblical resources. By extra biblical resources, I mean things like the research of medicine, uh, psychiatry, or psychology. Um, what is the relationship between scripture and, for example, biology, uh, or psychology, or philosophy, or literature, or, or math? What is the relationship between scripture and, say, for example, the medical advice of doctors, or even the counsel of our friends? And so as Christians, we believe that God's that scripture is God's word. Okay, we believe that scripture is God's word. And I think obviously that's, I think it's obvious for all of us. But as a result, we believe that scripture, because it is God's word inspired by God, it is our ultimate authority in life and godliness. In life and in faith. Okay? Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, you have to turn there. The Apostle Paul writes that all scripture... And he was really actually talking about the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. In other words, because scripture is God's inspired word, everything that we need to live for God's glory is given to us in his word, in the scriptures. This is what's known as the sufficiency 
of Scripture, okay? And so what the sufficiency of Scripture means is that, for example, as biblical as our counsel, as our words seek to be, it will never be sufficient the way that Scripture is. This means that as biblical as our sermons seek to be, it will never be sufficient the way Scripture is. This means that as biblical as our favorite pastors and preachers seek to be, they will, they will never be sufficient the way that Scripture is. And this also means that as helpful as psychiatric diagnoses or as helpful as sociological or philosophical systems may be, they will never be sufficient the way Scripture is. In other words, Scripture is our final authority in life. Scripture is our final authority in life. It has the final say on truth. But knowing what Scripture is sufficient for is going to be really, really, really important for our purposes. Because when we say that Scripture is sufficient, we need to ask what Scripture is precisely sufficient for. What is Scripture sufficient for? Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a very old document written in the 17th century, it writes that the whole counsel of God, the Scriptures, concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith in life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. Now, that's, that's a very uh, long explanation to simply say that the sufficiency of Scripture means that it is sufficient for all things pertaining to our life and our godliness, our Christian lives. And so what this implies is that Scripture does not have exhaustive knowledge about everything. You guys catch that? Here's an example of what I mean by that, okay? Let's take, for example, math. Scripture does not pretend, nor is it threatened by the fact that it can't help us solve two plus two. I mean, when you guys look at your Bibles, do you see it trying to solve two plus two for you? No. Scripture doesn't tell us what the fastest route is from your house to church. Scripture doesn't tell you how to do your job, how to be a student. It doesn't tell, tell you how to set a bone properly. Thank God it doesn't. Because that's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is that it has ultimate and sufficient knowledge to instruct us on how to live a life that is pleasing to God. But at the same time, Scripture is not an encyclopedia of the world. That's not what Scripture is for. Scripture has a lot to say, sufficient things to say, authoritative things to say about how we treat our friends well or how to study well or how we drive to church well, like abiding by traffic laws and stuff, or how to love others well or how to even suffer well. But it doesn't attempt to help us make spreadsheets nor tell us how to solve derivatives nor instruct us on what medicines to take when we get sick. That's simply not its purpose. Knowing what Scripture is sufficient for gives us actually a lot of flexibility with how we use 
extra-biblical resources. And by extra-biblical resources, what I mean is simply concepts or ideas or things that aren't directly in Scripture. And that's actually a lot of life. And so if we, so if we remember that Scripture possesses ultimate authority in our lives, then it actually puts all other extra-biblical resources in our world in its proper place. And so the scriptures obviously call us to be cautious, cautious and wary of ideas that are unbiblical. For example, in uh, Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul reminds us to not be held captive by deceptive thinking or traditions that are not according to Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we don't need to fear the use of extra-biblical resources if Scripture truly is our final arbiter of truth. Does it make sense? Plus, we do it all the time anyway. Uh, we Wikipedia things. We listen to podcasts. We listen to our friends. We read books. We don't seem to have too much problem um, or hesitancy from appealing to and using extra-biblical sources. We do it all the time. I mean, you, you want to learn how to cook, like, you know, tonkatsu chicken? You, you use a recipe. You don't go to the scriptures. And we don't have to be suspicious of these resources. Extra-biblical resources are simply gracious gifts that stem from God's common grace. So whether it's Google, whether it's research journals, archaeology, philosophy, psychology, medicine, literature, math, science, you name it. These are fruit from the tree of God's common grace that God allows us to pluck for our enjoyment, for our benefit, and even for our personal ministry to one another. Okay? We don't have to be afraid of using these things. And so when we see extra-biblical resources as what they truly are, as imperfect, yet still helpful aids, and not infallible replacements of Scripture, they can be helpful for us to use as Christians and in our ministry to others. And so the sufficiency of Scripture simply means that we hold everything under the light and scrutiny of the Word of God, not the other way around. Scripture, again, is the perfect and sufficient standard by which all other ideas, knowledge, diagnoses, research are judged and measured. And when we hold everything under the light of Scripture, okay, when we interpret everything through the lens of the Bible, Scripture's sufficiency actually opens us up to enjoying ideas and contributions provided by both Christians and also non-Christians. I mean, have you ever wondered what is our relationship with like things that are like made by non-Christians? Should we use those or should we only use things created by Christians? Like, you know, should we only read books written by Christians or should we wear clothing that's only created by Christians? Of course not. God's common grace allows us to use all those things for our benefit because God is good like that. And so scripture demands that we are on the one hand critical of all extra-biblical thinking and resources, while, on the other hand, it allows us to be appreciative of all of its contributions. This is God's world. Everything belongs to God. They're not perfect. They're certainly not neutral in world outlook and bias, some ideas, of course, but they can be helpful. In fact, 
it would be foolish if we didn't have a critical appreciation of, for example, sociology, or the arts, or medical research, or science, or psychology, and so forth. It would be foolish. In fact, this is what John Calvin writes in his uh, Christian theology known as the Institutes. He says this, Whenever we come upon these matters in not Christian writers, but in secular writers, he says, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts. He says, if we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it shall appear unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. That is John Calvin's counsel with regard to how we use non-Christian resources. Now, it does raise a question, I think, I'm sure for some of you, some of you might be wondering, so is it okay to see a psychiatrist then? Is it a sin to take medicine for mental health? Am I a bad Christian if I'm on medicine for forever, for as long as I live? And hopefully from our doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency, we've seen that actually Scripture does allow us to see a psychiatrist. It is not a sin to go see a psychiatrist, nor is it sin to take medicine for the rest of your life. There are caveats, of course, which we'll get to later, but at the very least, Scripture does not prohibit it. This is why, I think, and I hope you can see, this is why we needed to ground the, the topic of mental health within the doctrine of Scripture's sufficiency. We need to see what Scripture is sufficient for and what it allows us to use outside of Scripture. Does it make sense? So again, for example, uh, if you scan the pages of Scripture, it frequently shows troubled people in troubling circumstances, but it doesn't provide psychological descriptions or categories for their troubles beyond what we need to theologically know about them. That they are whole people created in the image of God, that they are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. We'll define those terms in just a second. That they live on the not-yet side of the kingdom of God and that they live in relationship with God. That's what Scripture teaches us, but it doesn't teach us psychologically what people are experiencing. And so again, the goal of Scripture ultimately isn't to medically or even psychologically diagnose diagnose bodily conditions. It does so theologically. It says that we are to use our bodies as instruments for righteousness, not unrighteousness. It says that our bodies include our souls, that there's a unified whole to our our, our, our bodies. It says that our bodies are perishable. They're weak. It says that our bodies have been broken and corrupted by the Father. There are limitations to our bodies. The, The human person, according to Scripture, is holistic, not dualistic. Scripture assumes that we need to eat, sleep, rest, breathe. Scripture sufficiently gives us ways to to love and care for suffering and broken people, to come alongside them, to provide them hope. Therefore, nothing in the realm of human existence is off limits to Scripture. The Scripture, again, reminds us over and over again that we're all broken, not just some people. The biblical doctrine of the fall tells us that all the brokenness that we see around us and in us is because of the fall. 
Because of a fall, our hearts are disordered, our bodies are dented and bruised, our minds are darkened, our emotions don't always align with our hearts. So according to the Apostle Paul, we do stuff that we should hate and we don't do stuff that we should love. We all experience brokenness to varying degrees, some to greater degree and some to lesser degree. And so, the, the, so for some of you, some of you experience dark and bad feelings. Do you know and realize where, they, where those come from? It, it points to the fact, the reality that we still live in a broken world. It is a response to the brokenness of the world and to a world that has not yet been fully redeemed by God. And the, the, the scriptures tell us why we experience brokenness in the world. How the world was broken. How brokenness doesn't have to interrupt our relationship with God. And how through the incarnation, God becomes broken for us to redeem us and the world from its brokenness. And so again, scripture is completely sufficient, again, for life and godliness. But again, beyond these theological categories, that's kind of it. Scripture has a lot to say about our bodies. Again, authoritative things, but it just doesn't do it medically or psychologically. Scripture speaks indirectly to everything, but it doesn't speak exhaustively about everything. Therefore, on many occasions, Scripture allows us to use the resources of the natural world, our world, our created world, where Scripture doesn't speak directly to. For this reason, again, it's, it's, it's helpful, it can be useful to utilize the insights of some psychological descriptions, as imperfect as they are, for greater understanding of people's struggles and troubling experiences. Okay, so that's the doctrine of Scripture and what the doctrine of Scripture allows for us. Now, before we actually talk about mental health, because if you guys have wondered, I haven't even got there yet, I just want to admit how elusive and difficult it has been to define it. Uh, one of the challenges in preparing for this talk is that mental health is an incredibly fluid phrase, It's used in academic contexts. It's used in everyday contexts and conversation. For example, what do people mean when they say that this person has been bad for my mental health? Or this class has been bad for my mental health? Or this teacher has been bad for my mental health? Or this prom date has been bad for my mental health? Or this pandemic was bad for my mental health? What do do people mean? What do we mean when we use the phrase mental health. And so we need to ask people some clarifying questions when they start talking about mental health. What do you mean by that? And so while we want to take seriously the concerns and sufferings of others, never dismissing the real and significant struggles and difficulties that others face, if I'm reading between the lines correctly, it seems to me that modern culture uses the phrase mental health generally to mean our emotional well-being or our stress tolerance or our feelings of being down or guilt or even burnout. Uh, In fact, uh, the CDC uh, defines, the Center for Disease Control, uh, defines mental health as an umbrella term that encompasses a person's emotional, psychological, or even social well-being. And so again, we just need to be very specific about what people mean by it. I'm not dismissing emotional well-being or stress tolerance or 
seasonal depression, but if we're calling everything a mental health problem, then nothing is a mental health problem. Does that make sense? That's the, I think that's the, that's, the, that's the kind of problem in calling everything a mental health problem, is that eventually nothing actually kind of becomes a mental health problem. Now, before we critique our modern culture's understanding of mental health, we should at least learn to appreciate it first. One of the more helpful contributions of modern culture is that it does name, I think, the significance of pressures of circumstances and the hard things in our lives. It names those things. It recognizes those things. It names the, the frenetic pace and, and neck-breaking speed at which we go on about our days. Uh, it recognizes the lack of margin that we have in our daily lives. We're burnt out. I mean, how many, how many of you guys you feel burnt out at the end of a Friday night? How many of you guys feel burnt out from me talking for the past, like, 30 minutes? We're tired. We're burdened. And most of the things that we're burnt out over, tired from, and burdened with are incredibly good and necessary things. Some things like, you know, serving the church, being involved in community, uh, doing sports, um, marching band. And so modern culture tends to recognize how the good stuff in our lives can also lead to significant burnout as well. Which is why modern culture tends to talk a lot about self-care. Uh, or medication, or therapy, or, or rest. I know some of you might have an allergic reaction to uh, the phrase self-care, but you know, I was, I was kind of looking up uh, different articles that describe what the components of self-care are, because I'm just curious. I'm like, I'm, 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 why are people so suspicious of this phrase self-care? And so I, 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 I took it upon myself to look up self-care on, you guessed it, Google, because the Bible doesn't, again, specifically talk about it. And virtually every single Google article um, that, I, that I found on Google, all of them virtually describe things that we all do in our daily lives, like physical exercise, or taking a break, or getting some sun, going on vacation, taking a personal retreat, spending time with others, doing our hobbies, eating breakfast as opposed to skipping it, listening to music, sleeping. This is how modern culture in some ways defines what self-care is. We all do it. And again, none of these things are bad things. The Bible is not against the self per se. The problem simply is that the, 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 the Bible's problem with modern culture is simply that modern culture places the individual self above all things. And scripture simply just critiques and corrects the order and recognizes God as the only one above all things, not the self. In fact, in her book, The Whole Life, Eliza uh, Huey sees biblical self-care as the practice of drawing on divinely given resources to steward our, li- our whole lives for personal enrichment, the good of others, and the glory of God. And so no matter how we call it, we call it biblical stewardship, it's a very, I think that's a very lighthousian way of talking about self-care. Uh, biblical self-care, whatever it is, we all do it, okay? We all do self-care, okay? It's just simply how we phrase it. The goal of having, the only di- distinct difference in Scripture, it seems to me, is that the goal of having space for more margin to rest, to exercise, to spend time with others, is just simply so that we see God in all of those things, Okay? 
The point of self-care is that we are simply reoriented back toward God, not toward ourselves, but toward God who gives good gifts to his children, not for greater self-indulgence or selfishness. Okay, that's biblical self-care. And so let's be, so when we hear the phrase self-care, let's be a bit more gracious and not be so hypocritical and judgmental, okay? And so this is, in my view, a, I think, helpful contribution of modern culture. But, as you guys know, here is where modern culture tends to go wrong, okay? Modern culture tends to hold outside influences more accountable as the main cause and culprit of our internal, mental, and emotional problems. So, for example, for example, okay, modern culture tends to blame academic pressure, the amount of homework that uh, our teachers assign to us, as the cause of our internal problems. Like, the reason why my mental health is so bad is because my teacher just will not stop giving us homework. Or, it tends to blame uh, a lack of friendships as the cause of our mental health deterioration. And so, social media, for example, is seen as the cause of low self-esteem. But, the problem is that in the modern view... Correlation is confused and conflated with causation. So here's what I mean by that. So academic pressure, peer pressure, social media aren't merely the influences that affect our emotional well-being, but they're now reduced to be the cause of our emotional well-being, determining both our emotional well-being's rise and also its fall, which obviously scripture disagrees with. And so this conflation from correlation to causation takes us to the main approach of modern culture. The main tendency of modern culture is to reduce, which is kind of ironic because that's exactly what I'm doing right now. But for the sake of time, uh, I have to make some generalizations, okay? So there seems to be five reductions that modern culture tends to make when they look at a person who is, for example, stressed out from school, okay? Five reductions. For the first reduction is that modern culture tends to turn descriptions into explanations. Descriptions into explanations. And so, for example, when modern culture hears a psychiatric diagnosis, and by psychiatric diagnosis, I really simply mean things, disorders like social anxiety disorder. You guys ever heard of social anxiety disorder before? Some of you guys? Some of you guys, okay. Uh, or OCD, okay, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, or major depressive disorder, that's maybe a more common one. Uh, or even a bipolar disorder, a dissociative personality disorder, if you've been watching uh, Moon Knight. Um, modern culture uh, tends to assume something about someone's biology by turning a description of what a stressed person experiences into who the stressed person fundamentally is. And I'll give some ex examples in, in, in just a second. Uh, but this, this reduction tends to reduce and define a sufferer's identity to their diagnosis. Well, I guess I'm just predisposed to be anxious for the rest of my life. And that's so hopeless. But scripture does not reduce symptoms as the sum total of our personhood. But secondly, descriptions, descriptions inherently 
aren't explanations. Just because we know that the characteristics of something doesn't mean that it explains something about who they are. Take, for example, this list of symptoms, okay? Sweaty palms, nausea, headaches, trembling, stuttered speech, fast heart rate, fear from observation and attention. All of these symptoms describe what is known as social anxiety disorder, okay? So if you guys didn't know what social anxiety disorder is, this is apparently a description of the symptoms of social anxiety disorder. Some of you guys might, might, might just realize, oh my gosh, maybe I have social anxiety disorder. Even if it does describe you, they don't explain why someone experiences it. Okay? Does it make sense? I mean, it doesn't tell you why they, do, why they experience these symptoms. Like, even if we said, oh, now I understand why you're this way. It still doesn't explain why. It's like saying that you experience social anxiety disorder symptoms because you have social anxiety disorder. Like, that's, that's reductionistic. Like, that doesn't, I mean, that, sorry, that's redundant, rather. That doesn't explain anything. For someone who experiences symptoms of social anxiety disorder, it's possible that they may have the disorder, or it's possible that they might not. And even if they do, the question is, so what? How does that help? More importantly, descriptions don't determine destinies. Descriptions don't determine destinies. You may struggle with social anxiety, but there are far more prominent biblical descriptions for Christians. It's far more hopeful. You know what those descriptions from Scripture are of you if you're a Christian? It says that you are a beloved son or daughter of God. It says that you are an image bearer of God. It says that you are a servant of Jesus Christ. It says that you are a living sacrifice. Those are far more hopeful, prominent descriptions of your life as a Christian than these disorders describe. Psychiatric diagnoses can be helpful starting points and can give us a brief sketch of a person's experience, but they merely they're, they're merely shorthand descriptions of complex human behavior rather than the sum total of who you are. It's like saying that your short bio on Instagram, which might be like, you know, flowers or like a, a Bible verse, whatever, is the sum total of who you are. It may describe truthful things about you, but not fully. How could, a, how could an Instagram bio fully describe who you are? A diagnosis is simply an invitation to get to know someone better and their particular struggles, okay? So that's the first reduction, is that modern culture tends to turn descriptions into explanations. The second thing, the second reduction, is that modern culture tends to root complex mental health problems only in biology. And so the first kind of leads to the second. Today, if you were to ask someone where mental health problems come from, well, they'll most likely say that they have underlying biological causes. This is not to deny that there can be, since we, we have bodies, since we are enfleshed souls, our souls have bodies, but to simply really cast doubt on the certainty of biological explanations as the final cause of a mental health problem. We should not readily jump to the fact that we're genetically predisposed uh, to have mental health problems because of our biology, okay? 
At the very least, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to prove. Even in medical diagnoses like migraine headaches, any of you guys experience migraines? Okay, doctors still don't know the ultimate biological cause for migraines. In fact, as theologian and registered mental health nurse John Swinton points out, the biological evidence for the root of all mental health disorders is at best speculative and at worst simply absent. As we care for those who suffer, we must be very, 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 very cautious about what we assume about the causes or cause of a person's struggle or suffering, physical or spiritual. And I hope that the book of Job taught us that. We should not readily jump to conclusions about someone's suffering. Descriptions of mental health disorders may describe certain behaviors concisely, succinctly, but it ultimately does not tell us why they experience it. Is it because of biology? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, they don't prove that there's a clear biological basis for behavior. Ultimately, the problem in using only biology as an explanation for mental disorders is that it becomes totally defining of, who, of the person who experiences it. And so people no longer have an illness, they are now reduced to being an illness. Does it make sense? That's a problem here. A biological explanation, if you've realized, like, and I think actually in some ways COVID has, uh, has stigmatized illness a lot. Like if you, at the start of the pandemic, if you, if you found out that or someone had COVID or if you had COVID, people looked at you differently. They assumed that not only did you have an illness, but that you were an illness. And so a biological explanation, as we know, is much deeper, much more personal, much more tied to with who a person is. And so we have to be very, very cautious about saying something biologically about someone. For example, uh, John Modrow, a psychiatrist who lives with schizophrenia, writes this in his book, How to Become a Schizophrenic. He says this, What the concept of mental illness offered me was scientific proof that I was utterly worthless and would always be worthless. It was just the nature of my genes, my chemistry, and brain processes, something that I could do nothing about. How hopeless is that? That when you're just simply reduced to a biological cause, you end up being reduced to being something worthless. That's so hopeless. And that's the modern tendency of our culture. The tendency ends up becoming, again, reductionistic and causes people to miss the whole person in front of them. The people in front of us aren't illnesses. They are real people, loved by God, made by God, cherished by God. People aren't just merely their biological explanations. Third, the third reduction is that modern culture tends to overpromise. Modern culture tends to overpromise. And so if the tendency of modern culture is to use biology as an explanation for mental disorders, then it's not surprising that the proposed solution for mental disorders is what? Medication, thank you, whoever responded. Thank you, medication. This isn't to downplay the use and importance of medication and medicine in mental disorder, which we'll talk about later, but the tendency of modern culture is to overpromise medication's efficacy to cure and treat brain chemistry. 
certain medicines seem to alleviate and reduce certain symptoms. That's, I think, uh, sometimes medically proven. But whether they can actually treat brain chemistry or chemical Im Im imbalances is actually ambiguous, precisely because there is no final biological cause for a mental disorder. Again, I'm not discouraging anyone. This is not medical advice, okay? I'm not discouraging. Talk with your doctor, okay, uh, if you want to go off medicine. That's not my place as a pastor to tell you to do that. But at the same time, I do want to mention that modern culture does tend to overpromise the efficacy of medicine. And that's something that we have to be aware of, okay? It may alleviate certain symptoms, and we've seen that in some research, but it, it does not actually treat brain chemistry if there is brain chemistry to begin with. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, that, was the, that was the shortest uh, reduction. Okay. The fourth uh, reduction is that modern culture tends to artificially create or dismiss mental health problems. Um, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder, otherwise known as the, D the DSM, uh, is the definitive resource that mental health professionals around the world use to describe and diagnose mental disorders. So if you are trying to look up a psychiatric diagnosis, you're most likely referring to what's known as the, D the DSM. Okay, it, the DSM is like the Bible of the mental health world, okay? It is their authoritative guide. But what's relevant for us to know about right now is that the DSM has a ton of uh, clinical, political, and financial power. That's not to say that the DSM doesn't accurately describe certain things. It does, I think. Uh, but, it, but we also shouldn't assume that it's completely neutral, okay? In other words, while... The DSM can provide helpful shorthand descriptions of psychiatric diagnoses like social anxiety disorder, major depressive disorder, schizophrenia. They're not perfect, okay? Because the DSM is compiled by a committee of psychiatrists, there will inevitably be particular agendas and emphases. This means that the DSM is constantly revised to reflect current cultural concerns and issues, unlike scripture. Scripture is uh, finally completely authoritative. There's no, there's no revisions or corrections that need to be made in Scripture. But the DSM needs constant revision to reflect cultural concerns and issues. I'll give some examples in just a moment. But one of the problems with the DSM is that it keeps changing its mind. DSM, the DSM diagnoses are simply pencil sketches of human experiences that are frequently being erased and redrawn and altered. It escalates some issues to mental disorder status, while it de-escalates some issues to non-mental disorder status. So, for example, uh, take, for example, homosexuality, okay? Homosexuality was considered a treatable form of mental illness in the early 70s, but it has since been de-escalated to not being a mental health issue at all. As it turns out, this change was not because of any new scientific evidence, but because of pressure from you can guess it, gay rights activists. Nevertheless, I think its de-escalation was uh, a correct move theologically. Um, of course, homosexuality is not a mental health issue. Um, it is a, obviously a sin issue. Um, another example is that Asperger's is now no longer considered a mental disorder. Asperger's is now considered a broad category of autism. Some have appreciated the de-escalation, de but others have seen it as a fall from grace. Um, 
a, uh, a spit in the face because many considered Asperger's syndrome as a separate category from clinical autism. The point isn't that the DSM is thoroughly corrupt with the modern agenda per se, but that the DSM has the ability to seemingly create new mental health categories or even reverse old mental health categories. And the problem, obviously, is that this makes the DSM somewhat arbitrary, subject to the changing winds of culture. And so whatever culture deems is right is what the DSM will deem is either a mental health disorder or not. It tends to reflect what is culturally popular and can even redefine behavior that scripture characterizes as sin, thus medicalizing sinful behavior and recasting it as mental illness, removing any sort of moral responsibility. Because if you, if you, if you now say that something, what, is, uh, what, what scripture divides, describes as something as sinful, but the DSM or modern culture defines as a mental health disorder, it now removes any sort of responsibility of the need to uh, seek the scriptures, to pray, to repent, uh, to change. And so what modern culture describes as a mental health problem could very well be biblically described as a sin problem cloaked in culturally acceptable lingo. Does that make sense? Maybe not. Okay, finally, the fifth reduction is that modern culture tends to treat sick people differently than normal people. More practically, okay, let's, we're, we're, actually, we're actually getting there, okay, so don't worry, okay, guys? More practically, uh, when we hear that someone is diagnosed with, for example, bipolar disorder, it may initially be illuminating at first, because, you know, the, the diagnosis can, fed, can shed further insight on someone's actions and erratic behavior. Uh, things begin to make a bit more sense about the person with the disorder. But then you realize, oh, shoot, like, I don't know how to care or love people or someone who's bipolar. Like, what, what in the world do I do? Like, I'm just a Christian, right? Have you, ever, have you guys ever wondered that? Like, when you, when you hear a diagnosis, like someone has depression, like, I, I don't know what to say. Putting a diagnostic label on someone may be helpful at first, but it tends to scare us because now the label somehow changes our perception of our care for this person when it didn't before. It tends, it tends to create a buffer that wasn't there at first. But it's not like, so let's, let's, let's take for example that, you know, you didn't know someone, uh, you know, struggled with uh, major depressive disorder, but now your friend shows up and tells you, Hey, I you know recently saw a psychiatrist and they they diagnosed that I have mental health, I have a mental health disorder. You're like, oh my gosh, like what do I do? But the thing is, it's not like you care for them differently prior to the diagnosis, right? So why should your care for others change just because you have new insight or a label on their struggles? Does it make sense? Knowing new insight on a person's struggles may enhance our care for others, but it shouldn't cause us to shrink away from them. A person's diagnosis may mean that they require extra help, but it doesn't mean that your care for them should necessarily change. It is a mistake to think that you should treat people with psychiatric diagnoses differently than other people. I mean, perhaps, maybe they need more care and consideration due to their hardships. But why should we treat people fundamentally differently just because of their struggles? Like, why should we treat people differently just because they suffer from depression or exhibit erratic behavior or struggle with same-sex attraction? Like, why should that change our care for other people? Are we really so different from others? So we include others. We encourage them. We thank them for sharing. We talk about hard things. We rebuke. 
We learn from those who are different from us. The challenge, of course, is that it is not natural to be normal with those who, are, who act abnormally. But this is what is needed. And it's what makes our care as Christians so different from others. Too often, we leave those with psychiatric diagnoses to the experts and forget that there, that there is a per, that simply a person in front of us, a person who still needs to be included and cared for, a person who at the end of the day is created in the image of God, who needs Jesus just as much as you do. Whatever their diagnosis may be, it doesn't hinder them from loving God and it doesn't hinder them from receiving God's love. And so why should it hinder our love for them or their love for us even? The point isn't, isn't to ignore that someone is depressed or has OCD. The point isn't to pretend that it isn't there. That's not what not treating people differently means. The point is that the labels and the diagnoses and their struggles don't have to get in the way of our love for people. Will it be hard? For sure, of course. I mean, loving sinners is hard. Loving sufferers is hard. We're all sinners and sufferers. And it's hard. I mean, the most difficult person that you'll ever love is yourself. But it shouldn't stop us from trying. The Christian worldview allows us to see people as whole people. It allows us to see people as people created in the image of God. People who don't just possess the image of God. They are the image. It allows us to see people as fallen and broken, but not just some people, but all people. It allows us to see that people, no matter how broken or messed up they may be, they can be redeemed, liberated from their sin, placed on the path of restoration, waiting for their full redemption in and through Jesus Christ. I mean, what hope that the scriptures describe for a Christian? It's possible, as, as Mike Emlett said earlier, uh, the quote that I mentioned, it's possible for a person without a diagnosed mental disorder, which is deemed normal according to society, and yet be far from God. And it's also possible for a person with a diagnosed mental disorder, which is abnormal according to society, and yet to live a life pleasing to God. You can be abnormal to the world and be normal in relationship to God while being normal to the world and be abnormal in your relationship with God. And so we don't treat people differently. Unfortunately, that's what, in some ways, modern culture tends to do. Okay, I'm going to have us do a five-minute break, okay? Um, because I spoke, I think we started at like 7.50, <laughs> and it's uh, 8.48, so I, I, I went for... Uh, almost an hour. So um, let's take a five-minute break, bathroom break, water break. You're welcome to talk with me, ask quite any questions that you might have, uh, and then we'll get to the more practical stuff uh, in the second part of um, this lecture, okay? All right, five minutes, go.